Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Stop it at car! You did it, Gene! Stop! Stop at $4,000 on a spin! Stop! Stop! Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 226. Today, these three players are after big bucks, but they'll have to avoid the whammy as they play the most exciting game of their lives. From Television City in Hollywood, it's time to press your luck! time I watch uh, Press Your Luck, I like to tell people, hey, you know the story about this guy? And it's always a fun like story about how somebody scammed the system, kind of. Maybe they didn't scam it. They exposed a vulnerability in the system, maybe. Yeah, or, or as hackers would express it, he discovered a zero-day exploit and uh, exploited it live on national television. That is my dear friend, Brian Brushwood, and we are talking about how in 1983, someone used a VCR to tape and then memorize the patterns in the seemingly random selection sequence on the game show, Press Your Luck. Now, before this, most people had no idea that it was just a loop, an animation that played and you could memorize it. But if you did memorize it, you could perfectly press your buzzer and avoid all whammies. A whammy was... When the squares on this 18 square game board lit up and you pressed your buzzer when a losing square was illuminated, an animation would run of a weird little creature called a whammy. And this creature would go across the screen and steal your winning so far. The idea of the show was you were always just playing with random chance and you would win some money and then say, hmm, should I press my luck and go again because I might hit a whammy? But it turns out it wasn't random at all. And if you could land on these other squares, you could time it just right, you could get more money and extra spins, which is the key thing. With extra spins that get you extra spins, you can play the game infinitely. So by hacking that game show, or as Brian says, discovering a zero-day exploit, an unemployed ice cream truck driver named Michael Larson, who passed away in 1999, adjusted for inflation, still holds the record for the most winnings ever won by a contestant in a single appearance on a daytime network game show. Nearly, adjusted for inflation, a quarter of a million dollars. All right, best of luck to you. Let's meet our second player, Michael Larson. How are you, Michael? Now, Michael, what do you do for a living? 
Oh, I drive an ice cream truck in the summer. I hope to win enough money here not to have to do that Do you have summer. it with you today? <laughs> do you have the ice cream truck with you today? No, I didn't. Oh, uh, we had all kinds of orders we were going to take. What a day for it. Well, Michael, you want to earn enough money so you don't have to deal with the ice cream truck. Right. Huh? You just right. want to eat the ice cream, though. No, I've done enough of that, too. <laughs> you kind of OD'd on ice cream, right? Yeah. Well, hopefully you won't OD on money, Michael. Best no. of luck to you. And let's... But there's a lot more to this story, especially what happens after he wins all this money. And in this episode, we're going to sit down with Brian Brushwood and talk about all that because he has a new podcast called The World's Greatest Con. And in it, he tells this story and a lot of others in a new second season all about the history of con artists and others manipulating the outcomes of game shows. Let's go. Done. It's the seventh spin still. All right. Stop! Stop at Kauai. Michael, a trip to Kauai. The value of the trip is 1,636. 14,136. No, I'm going. Gonna go. There's a wonderfully strange and psychologically illuminating history of game show hacking. And Brian is uniquely suited to share that history and the science behind it because he has several decades of professional experience as a stage magician and as a prominent figure in the skeptic community and as a person who is a true expert on how scams and con artistry shenanigans are performed, big and small. I'm Brian Brushwood, and for 20 years, I could just say I was a touring stage magician. And then the internet started having me be a YouTube guy, and then I got a TV show. But nowadays, I like most pointing people to World's Greatest Con, a podcast all about an endless search for the world's greatest con. So, yes, Brian Brushwood. He's a lot of things, a super successful touring stage magician who has appeared on The Tonight Show, The Roseanne Show, Anderson Cooper 360, CNN, The Food Network... Steve Harvey's Big Time Challenge, and on his own show, the National Geographic program called Hacking the System. He's also an author, a TV host, and television show creator, producer, a YouTuber, and so on. And now, the world's greatest con, whose first season was all about how the British in World War II pulled off Operation Mincemeat, which he considers to be the world's greatest con. Because it involved creating an entire fictional human being with all the records to match and then convincing the Nazis that it was the identity of a corpse dressed up as a royal marine, which they delivered to the coast of Spain by submarine where it washed ashore along with documents stuffed in his clothing containing fake correspondence between British generals meant to mislead Hitler into believing an invasion of Greece was imminent. And it worked. The Nazis moved their troops to defend the invasion, which left Sicily wide open. In the show, Brian goes into much more detail about every little step, but he also goes into detail about the psychology behind why every little step worked. In season two, however, Brian applies this same approach to game shows. And before we go to commercial break, after which you'll hear the full interview with Brian, I would like to play a bit of that show. So in this clip, Brian is explaining the history of a quiz show scandal, and to help understand the thinking, feeling, and behaving that led to this scandal, he offers some insights into the behavioral mechanics of stage hypnotism. 
Have you ever been to a stage hypnotist show? Sometimes these shows are like at a Christmas event for a corporation. Sometimes you'll buy a ticket on the strip in Las Vegas. I always see them at these college freshman orientations. You know, those big events they do in the first one or two days when you come to campus, when they want you to bond together as a cohort and have shared experience. It's the perfect activity to get people to reveal stuff about themselves. In fact, put yourself back there. You don't know anybody. You don't know how any of this is going to go. But you do know that you want to fit in. There's a thousand other people in this packed, charged auditorium. You're excited. They're excited. You want to know them. They want to know you. How walks a guy, an authoritative suit, who explains to you that only one type of person can be hypnotized. Smart person. Somebody smart enough to exactly follow directions on cue. And no, you won't lose free will. But yes, you will experience something that you will remember for the rest of your life. And then comes the first part of how stage hypnosis works. He asks, who here in this room would like to be hypnotized? This feels like a very small moment. It's not. It's the most important moment. The reason it's the most important moment is because you are self-selecting for compliance. You are entering a contract. You are saying, I am ready to play. So you and 45 other freshmen go running up to the stage. You all get in a line. And what happens first is a very small ask. The stage hypnotist says, I want you to imagine that you're getting very, very hot. Oh, what must that be like to be very, very hot? And of course you are hot. You're under a bunch of heat lamps. You're on stage. You're next to all these other sweaty bodies. You just ran a hundred meters to get up here. After a few minutes of this, the language changes just a little bit. Now he just says, now you're getting cooler. Well, you know what he's talking about, right? I was hot, now I'm getting cooler. Of course, of course. Also, by the way, you are actually getting cooler. You worked up a sweat while you were up there on stage. Now all that sweat is starting to evaporate. You're getting cooler. So you begin to shake and shiver, cover yourself. And all the while, he's quietly eliminating people. Now he doesn't say elimination. What he says is, if I tap you on the shoulder, it just didn't work out. It's not really a punishment, but you know what you want. You know you want to stay up there on stage. You want to keep going. We hear directives and sleep. And we know while we're up there on stage, what he means is act as though you just went into a slumber. Collect your thoughts. And you begin to watch as stranger and stranger things happen around you. Always happening to other people. Something amazing is about to happen. Person I'm touching right now, only the person I'm touching right now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you a question. And when I do, you will be unable to remember the number seven. And when he asks you to add together four and four, you say eight. It's like, great. So you must have eight fingers pointed up. Go ahead, count them. One, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, uh, what else are you going to do? 
And meanwhile, the audience is loving it. The laughter, the applause. I mean, you think of yourself as an introvert. You've never experienced anything like this. But right now, the attention is on you and you are in full-on flow state. It melts all of these decisions about whether you're playing along or just following instructions. They all get blended together. Choices become instinctual. All you know is that it feels awesome. And when this dude tells you something to do, you do it, everybody claps, and you feel great. And then, 40 minutes into the performance, he says to you out loud, You are Britney Spears. And you have a choice. Because the hypnotist didn't lie. You do have free will. You could do anything you want at any moment. But you also know that of any two options, you want the one that's less painful. And in that moment, it would be more painful to stop the show, to say, this has been a wild ride, but I'm afraid I'm outside of my comfort zone. I'm just going to head on down back to my seat. What's less painful is that you are Britney Spears. It's calorie-free fame. There's no way you can lose. You'll be rewarded if your dancing is good. You'll be blameless if it's bad. The reliability of these reactions to fame and shame, that's what allows stage hypnotists to make a living doing this. Yes, hypnosis is a real phenomenon, but stage hypnosis is a different animal. And everybody on that stage were acting the way that they did for fame. The folks that stayed up there the longest did so out of fear that they would be eliminated and the shame that would come from that. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. On February 1st of this year, we did this cool thing, Misha Globerman and myself. He's a communication expert, a negotiation expert, a conflict resolution expert. He does this thing called How to Talk to People About Things. He's been on the show a couple times. We did something new together called the Conversation Lab, where we help you have difficult conversations using science and practice, theory, and actual <laughs> real-world experience that he has. Hundreds of people came to this. It was great. It was free. And we decided, let's do another one. Uh, some people couldn't make it to the first one, so we want to do this again. To get in on this thing, there's a link in the show notes. So it should be in your podcast player. Also over on the website, I'll have a link there as well. Just click it, sign up, show up over Zoom. It's going to be great. I can't wait to see you there and just chit chat about your not so smart stuff and conversation stuff. The conver- This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event, and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this 
helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just, there's too many, you can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, 
all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. Station Lab. And now we return to our program. I recommend you listen to season one just so you have something to tell people while you're drinking because it's one of those kind of stories like, hey, did you ever hear about this thing they did in World War II? Just jump into it. Yeah. So uh, my uh, my partner, Justin Robert Young, called me up one day and was like, uh, hey, if you had your own podcast, what would you want to talk about? I, and instantly, just out of my gut, without any thought, it was, I would want to talk about the world's greatest cons. He says, what is the world's greatest con? And then again, with no hesitation, it's like, well, it's got to be Operation Mincemeat, this allied initiative in which uh, Ian Fleming, creator of James Bond, wrote down an idea that sat locked away in a storage box for years until two guys, Montague and Chumley, uh, discovered it. And in a feint to trick Hitler into believing the Allies were going to invade the Balkans and not Sicily, they planted all of this pocket litter, an entire story on a dead body that they have to build from scratch over months and months and months beforehand that they had to run eulogies in the newspapers about, then find a body that happened to look close enough to what they were going for, fill it with all of this pocket litter, these tickets to shows that they actually, the team went to so that they would be valid, and then attach him to something labeled top secret, please don't let the Nazis know where we're going to invade, uh, and then dump the body off the coast of Spain in just the right spot, a spot that they knew there were Nazi sympathizers, but it wouldn't be so obvious that they would get screwed. So instead, and there was this horrifying moment. One of my favorite moments is at the very end of the whole scheme, somebody tries to play by the rules and says, oh, this looks like it says top secret. You should have this, sir. And then, uh, and, and, and knowing what was in it, knowing that the whole purpose was to leave this box alone with a Nazi sympathizer, just summon all the British you have in you and say, no, I think we should follow procedure, which means I'll be leaving you and this guy who is a known Nazi sympathizer alone in the room with this box. Goodbye, I'll be back shortly. And uh, sure enough, um, uh, as, uh, not to spoil history, but uh, Hitler does move thousands of tanks and, 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 and tens of thousands of people to the wrong place. And then when the Allies invade Sicily, it's a total romp. They just bowl right over it. I love this story so much on like a thousand different levels. One being it's, it's pure psychological warfare, but it harkens into your massive area of expertise, with, which is con artistry, magician thinking, audience thinking when you're in an environment like that. Because it's a, the trick is con get, allowing the other person to come to the conclusion and not feel like you led them to that conclusion. Like it was all in their head. The other part of it is to be, uh, I remember having uh, dinner with you and uh, Matt Dillahunty and watching you have a magic off with each other yeah. and uh, which was awesome. And then 
hearing you both wax poetic about the 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 best magic tricks. I'll I'll mess this up. I think you have a better way of putting it than I do. Which is are the ones where you just can't believe somebody would go to that much effort, or you can't believe that somebody would do something that dumb or weird or, or, or exhausting to get to the point. So you don't even take that into account. Yeah. And that's like a huge part of this, right? The the vignette that I like to share with people for years and years, you know, you finish an hour long stage show, somebody comes up and they're like, I just have one question. This guy I saw on TV, he did this thing and it was just incredible. And I would just love to know how he did it. And I always ask the same question. I said, well, imagine I told you that in two hours, cameras would arrive and you have to replicate that exact same feat, and it will be broadcast on national television. I say, how would you do it? And invariably, what happens, the next words out of their mouths are the exact method of how they would do it, followed by the words, but that would be stupid. (laughs) And then the moment somebody says, but that would be stupid, that's it, you've solved it. Because you want to believe and there being some brilliantly simple mechanical mechanism or some thing that you can't comprehend. But the idea that, um, that, that I mean, again, it's like a, one of my favorite things about season one is that we begin with a vignette of uh, the lesson of you can't con an honest John. And I talk about being in college couple guys in a white uh, white van try to sell me some speakers. They spin a tale about how their excess inventory, they're normally $2,000, but they'll let them go for $300. And me, thinking I'm seeing through their ruse, um, and, and puffing myself up thinking like, ha, these are stolen speakers. I got your number. So I bought them. I felt like a champion. And it wasn't until six months later that I found out when I met my future bu- brother-in-law where I was describing these speakers. And, and the, the point of the story was that I'm a cool guy who bought some stolen studio monitors, but he immediately was like, ah, so you met one of those guys. And I'm like, what guys? He's like, yeah, those guys, they convince you that the speakers are <laughs> stolen, but they're just garbage speakers. Uh... And that was when I realized I had gotten got. And what's beautiful is by the end of season one, we find ourselves – Uh, It wasn't until after we did it that we realized what we had done. Like, oh, did we just position Hitler as the sympathetic rube (laughs) and the con men as the good guys? (laughs) Because there's definitely this moment that Hitler is looking at the report thinking like, oh my gosh, this is in every way what I want to believe. But I mean, (sighs) I mean, I guess they could have taken a dead body, filled it with all of this, faked a personality for years, uh, put in all this correspondence, lied about it and all that stuff, and then planted this evidence on the shores of a neutral territory, hoping it would land on my desk, dot, dot, dot. But that would be stupid, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's so good because you in the in the show, uh, I, I thought I had a pretty general understanding just from when you, as you introduce it in the first episode, but the amount of work to fill out the entire possible backstory of this person that supposedly is the body that involves going through like their entire life, like going back to like their teenage years and everything they ever did, everybody they ever met, every document they would ever had to assign. They did all of that. It blows my mind. Well, and the worst part is they did all of that knowing that 99.99% of it would never be looked at, would never be poked at. You you have to, um, as I'm fond of pointing out, that in the chess game between con man and Mark, the con man has the advantage of a massive asymmetry. 
he gets to spend, he or she gets to spend a lot of time crafting this initial uh, first impression, this tableau, all the effort into the first impression. Because uh, if you do your job right, you identify what the mark desperately wants to hear, what they desperately want to believe. You want to know all of their cognitive biases. You want to know all of the type of people they like to surround themselves for, all of their psychological and personality flaws. And you want to cater to all those. But you must not push. When we see cons pulled off in movies, there's always lots of moving parts, a lot of bits that might be broken. Uh, and that works for the movies because it keeps us on the hook narratively. In reality, what you do is you make 99 parts and you just lay them all out in front of them. And then 98 of them don't get used. They get walked right past or ignored. And you have to be totally fine with that. Now, on the flip side, the mark gets what Gavin DeBecker calls the gift of fear. Uh, as, as we point out in the show, uh, Gavin DeBecker says, as an animal – as we evolve, we don't have sharp claws. We don't have tough bones. We don't have scales. We got one thing. We have a very finely tuned sense of intuition when it comes to danger. When we hear a twig snap, we all freeze. And it's only after we see that it's a coyote or whatever that we all let out a laugh because it's not a saber-toothed tiger. So uh, that voice that says something is off, something is wrong, that gut instinct, that is the tool of the mark. And by all accounts, Hitler, and in fact, uh, uh, Goebbels, uh, upon looking at Operation Mincemeat, said a version of, yeah, this all smells like bullshit to me. <laughs> like they had the right answer right in their hand, but but whether it was pride, whether it was a need to to pull one over uh, or what, they invested all of their troops in the wrong spot. I love that you frame it as the world's greatest con because I feel I've felt this way forever. Every time we we've talked about this on the show, like um, people who work in magic or work in that kind of performance space, people who are uh, we would call con artists, they through AB testing and, and, and like actually practice predicted and privately sorted and categorized a lot of things that didn't become part of quantified science until the seventies, the nineties, the two thousands, this is stuff that's being done in the forties based off of knowledge that's been derived from eras before that if you were to toss this into a scientific domain, they'd say, oh yes, this is, that's this bias and that's this heuristic and that's this fallacy and blah, blah, blah. But they already had a handle on how to operate within that world without having a foundation of textbooks to lean upon, which blows my mind. Which, when you hear it put that way, might puff up the ego of magicians. And trust me, we don't need any more ego puffing. <laughs> um, but, but, but the truth of it, as I see it, is that uh, we're, we're folk scientists in the way that people had learned to farm and rotate crops years before we understood anything about uh, 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 what is it, nitrogen fixing or, or Punnett squares or crossbreeding. Uh, those are recent additions just in the last few centuries that, that validated what intuitively farmers figured out from grandpa, grandpa wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. So likewise, you have this whole branch of the arts in magic where it's highly rigid and uh, specific in its instructions. And we don't know why it works, but we know that it works. And uh, some some magicians uh, say, oh, scientists need us. And I was like, uh, maybe they need us to tell us the story so far, but 
pretty sure the scientists have it from here, uh, which, which is not to take anything away from our folk sciences of the last several centuries, whether, you know, going, going back to the shamans or, or the charlatans or uh, the, the vaudevillians. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I think we've, we've intuited something that only now scientists and psychologists are able, able to put the words to. I love that because there's a couple of those, they call it like folk physics and folk psychology. Like uh, in folk physics, it was the pound of lead is heavier than a pound of feathers kind of thing. Uh, sure. And, but there were a lot of other things we had already figured out. The folk psychology, one of the weirder ones is the extra mission theory of vision, where you feel like we see things by shooting beams out of our eyes and, and uh, like we're Cyclops or Superman. And oddly enough, in, that's something that we intuitively believe. And until you learn differently, uh, when you ask people that question, even college students, they oftentimes say, yeah, that's how vision works until they've been taught otherwise. And all through the scientific, the, the pre-scientific literature of like the Greeks and Romans, that was what their pre-scientists said. And they're trying to figure out how it worked until vision science came online and flipped it around and said, no, it's kind of the other way. Well, and, and that's a big, big part of being uh, a deceiver of any variety, whether it's a con man or a magician. And I do love the duality of, uh, of, of magic being essentially a safe chess game in which we use the same tools as uh, nefarious actors would when it comes to an actual con. Um, but, but a lot of it is taking advantage of those core intuitions uh, all the way down to your sense of self or, or the, your sense of memory, the mm. belief that, that, that you can't be manipulated after the fact by leading questions to misremember something that happened or the belief that there's a you in charge of your body, a, humuncul a humunculus in, instead of a simulation. That's so good. This reminds me, and I wanted to ask you this, and I'll leave this in the show. Did you what? Have you seen Nightmare Alley? I have not, but I want to. This is the new uh, Guillermo del, del Toro. Brian, they made a show just for you. Like this movie. I, I, this movie I'm is so about. Excited. This movie is about your world. It's about a like professional magicians and artists in that domain getting and in the world of the carny si sideshow to boot and then it's it shows how there's a a division of those who are like and why don't why don't we just take this to cold reading and to seances uh, this is great I, I will definitely check it out and it doesn't hurt that you know by virtue of you know as as youtube became more popular teaching magic on youtube became popular and i found myself at the the, the nexus of sort of a um uh I, I don't know, an internal moment of reflection where it's like, where is the greater moral good when it comes to teaching? It is teaching magic online exposure, AKA something that ruins the art, mm. or is it teaching something that brings more people into the tent? And I tend to be a big tent guy. The way I describe it, I think I told you this metaphor is I perceive the job as the, of the magician to be uh, the best chess player in the village. You come in, you take on everybody, and you're the best chess player. Now, there's two ways to be the best chess player. One is you could study all the opening moves of the greats. You could learn all the book openings. You can uh, uh, practice, practice, practice. The other way is to say, nobody except me should know the rules of chess. Mm. Now I'm the best chess player. <laughs> and and <laughs> which, yeah, depending on how you want to phrase it, could position magic as a cartel of protectionists who are trying to make their jobs easier by keeping the secrets for themselves. You you heard it here first. Uh, <laughs> uh, the beef has been has been started. The gauntlet is down. Uh, well, I I feel like we have uh, given people FOMO 
pretty hard about not listening to season one if you haven't. Please do. Uh, but you're here to promote this second season. And always, like I think a lot of people watch Jeopardy or, or Wheel of Fortune and think, man, I would kill at that. But there are some people who watch those shows from the sidelines and go, oh, I could break this. And you have a whole show about this. You have a whole season about this. It's beautiful. This was a very... Um a very hard left turn that we took in the writing because uh, once we did season one, season one was one epic tale broken into four chapters. And in each of the four chapters, we try to expose another aspect of the human mind. We tell some tall tales from Brian's history. Uh, we, we learn in season one that you can't con an honest John. We learn uh, about the value of, of the tableau. We learn about, um, uh, how something works on the page, but might be challenging to pull off in real life. We learn about that gut feeling versus, uh, you know, the, the con man surrenders the story. At that point, it's out of their hands. It's up to the mark to convince themselves. Uh, season two on paper is the exact opposite. How do you go from f- the world fooling Hitler to game show frauds? <laughs> and uh, and uh, when I first pitched it to to my partner Justin, he was like, "Okay." And uh, and he, uh, to his credit, he sat with it for a little bit. And within two weeks, he had read up on enough stories. He was like, "Oh, this is perfect because it's it's the evolution of the carnival midway. It's the glitz and glamour. It's the promise of free money." And what I love so much about season two is number one, it lets us break away from being a history podcast uh, and instead tell multiple stories and and five different tales, each one with a different important lesson, beginning with the one that defined the um, scary, skullduggerous nature of the entire scene with uh, uh, the the 21 scandal that later became the movie Quiz Show. And uh, we begin with the question, I was convinced everybody had already seen this. I'm since thrilled to here that that fewer people than I thought had. But we begin with the question of 200 people are coming into a federal grand jury, and they're all told the same thing. Tell the truth, you'll be on your way. If you lie, you are now committing a crime, and you will be indicted on federal perjury charges. Uh, and these are not nobodies. These are doctors, lawyers, uh, retired military, school teachers, people with a lot to lose if their reputations are tarnished. And yet, with 200 of them in the room, the vast majority, under oath, all perjure themselves. And that, to me, was fascinating. Like, what would cause that to happen? And so, at the beginning of episode one, we compare it to the phenomenon of a stage hypnotist act, which I believe you just listened to. This this idea of very tiny steps that get farther and farther along, where Every single small decision you make is rational, but you find yourself in a decision gate where the rational, easy choice is the one that happens to put your whole career, your reputation, everything you are at risk. And uh, at the end of this story, you have this one character, uh, Charles Van Doren, who uh, who played along, and when he died, his uh, this is the heartbreaking part, is his obituary is one line, and it says... The guy who cheated on that show. This is somebody whose family reputation, you know, he had a PhD. He was on his way to to go teach at at, at, at prestigious colleges and stuff. And so uh, uh, it's a fascinating tale of uh, because there are two main players. You have one player who from the beginning is told, we're going to pull a heist together. And then they do it. 
And then, uh, uh, but but it's never enough for that one guy. He wants more TV, more Herb Stemple constantly saying, where's my panel show? I'm, I've got one over on you. I'm going to tell the feds and, and ruin your day. Uh, Charles Van Doren uh, got a different deal where it was straight up like, hey, how would you like to get paid? How would you like to make education glamorous to an entire generation of youngsters? Uh, let's get started. And then the deeper he got in, the the better his career did. And it came to this point where he couldn't get out. And then there is this moment, if you've seen the movie, where he uh, confesses and says, yeah, it was all, you know, I was fed answers and all that stuff. Uh, and uh, the whole world turned on him. <laughs> Meanwhile, the guy who set up the scheme, Dan Enright, scot-free, 10 years later, he's back with a brand new show called The Joker's Wild. Uh, it's It's incredible. Either that or Tic-Tac-Doe. I forget which one he came back with. Tic-Tac-Doe. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> the uh, There's this thing you talk about, fame and shame, that really like like juiced uh, parts of my brain right up to 100% functioning, it felt like, which was this idea that reputation management, which is something I've been jamming out on a lot lately on the show, this as a motivating factor for why we do all sorts of stuff and why we put ourselves into very strange positions, it never would have occurred to me that that was an aspect of stage hypnotism. And if you could just wax poetic on that for a second or two. Sure. Well, and when it comes to stage hypnotism, it's not that anybody knows they're seeking fame, but when people clap for you, it feels good. Like oftentimes, if you take an 18 year old, a whole bunch of freshmen at orientation, throw them on stage, they're, you get to watch live as they experience a taste of a very powerful narcotic live on stage. And you get to see how quickly people readjust their behaviors in order to get more of that dopamine hit. Uh, and uh, nobody's to be faulted for that. But the shame thing is the part that really stuck with me. In fact, in preparation for this first episode, I reread um, uh, John Ronson's So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which I read for the first time in 2012, and I enjoyed the book as a theoretical exercise, a morality tale of people who are irresponsible on social media. I read it very, very differently 10 years later, and I understand why people would take the calculated risk of refusing to admit that the show was fraudulent, that they were actors, that they were uh, the, the one guy who was immune to the shame is the one who refused to feel it, the whistleblower. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, John was on the show and talked about that, that book and, and it was, and I, I think about it sometimes cause I've, I've framed it with talking about pillories and the way we've used shame as punishment over the years, but I, that show, that episode and that book came out before we, everybody really got onboarded onto social media and we had a, a social media president and we had, uh, TikTok and everything else that's come since i I, I feel like uh, we have a different uh, relationship today with reputation management and why people do weird stuff on the internet and then beyond. And I've, I've, I love that your show comes out after that sort of a bit of public knowledge so that when you can, these some of these characters you talk about in the show, you can um, maybe empathize, empathize. I don't know if that's the right word, but you certainly- oh, No, no, it, it definitely is. There's a reason that our tagline is cons don't fool us because we're stupid. They fool us because we're human. Like, that's good. And there's there's nothing wrong with being human. Yes, we are composed of flawed wetware that that cannot be patched. Uh, that's okay. And, and these are the stories, both heroic and tragic, 
of people who exploit those for good or for ill. And that's that's what I love about doing an anthology season is that we have stories of the powerful screwing over the little guy. We have the little guy taking on the man. We've got uh, we've got clean actors who are in the wrong place at the wrong time. We have conspiracies that are clever, conspiracies that are not clever. It's uh, uh, my hope is that by the end of season two, we between between the world conquering Hitler with a con and game show frauds, hopefully the, the play space is now wide enough that we get to tell all types of stories of deception, oh. both self-deception and the uh, the other. Yes, I love this. I want this to be on Netflix on top of everything else. Uh, so if anybody listening to this has has ends to that world, uh, I would like to see, especially season season one, I can totally see as like a movie, but I want season two to be a show that I get to watch with lots of clips from these game shows. Please make this. Uh, yes, <laughs> please. I, I agree. I second it. Uh, speaking of that, I, I, you, uh, you got to meet Bob Eubanks. Uh, yeah, dude. I went out for just before I moved to Norway for a couple of years. Uh, there was like one week. I went and did uh, card sharks. I went through the whole process uh, as what happened. The structure of these things are you vet a bunch of contestants because you don't really care who's going to make the money. What you want is smiling kids for teen week. And I was in the pool and for whatever reason, didn't get picked that one day. But they said, come back again next week. And I'm like, I'm moving to Norway. So, but, but, but walking up and down the CBS studios and just out of the corner of my eye, seeing that, that Plinko machine. Uh, and I, I couldn't help myself. I walked over and I touched it. And it really is a testament to the fetishization we have of, of this shared cultural moment. And in fact, uh, uh, The Price is Right plays prominently. I, I'm sure everybody at home is trying to guess what episodes come when, but definitely uh, if you are familiar with the story of The Perfect Bid on uh, The Price is Right, we 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 break that one down uh, later oh, on. Oh, that's so good. Because I, I have an icebreaker. I, I like to ask people, how much money is the most you would be willing to spend to just spin the big wheel, the actual real big wheel one time? No one gets to see you spin it. You don't get to take any pictures. You don't win any money. How much would you be willing to, to, to pay to buy a ticket to just spin this thing? And I, I've asked that to people. Well, I'll ask you first. What do you, how much would you be willing just to I spin mean, that's, it? That's, an, uh, that's literally whatever amount of cash happens to be in my pocket. I'll just pretend <laughs> I lost my wallet. <laughs> be, be, beyond that, I have to consult my significant other. <laughs> yeah, I've asked that and I've had people say $1,000 and I've had people say $20. It, it ranges around, but it really says something about you the higher you go. Uh, so I'm glad that it's in the show and that you got the, you've, you've, uh, you're uniquely positioned to be the host and presenter and writer for something like this because you've moved around in those worlds of, of more than you know most people. You've did the... Uh, card sharks but you also had some experience with like fear factor and and putting forth uh, pilots of your own you've been in that space a little bit huh that that might be you're you're orbiting around what might be my favorite aspect of doing world's greatest con is that it number one is a show that 20 years ago i could be just as factually accurate as i am today but it wouldn't play because i don't me personally, I'm 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 in my late 40s now. I've had handcuffs slapped on me. I've been chased off by the police. I I I have, as we'll explain in an upcoming episode, literally cheated in Vegas. You know, and and as uh, I told a friend once that uh, I'm only interested in projects that are only going to get better the older I get. And oh, as I creep as I creep up on 50, my shadow grow grows longer. And that's part of why half of each episode is the story itself. 
a quarter of it is demystifying the hidden flaws in our humanity that people exploit. And then a quarter of it is full personal stories. And, and those only seem to sweeten as I get older. <laughs> That's good. I'm going to now take that as life advice. I appreciate it. Uh, as I as I look at projects, uh, and sometimes you know you get things that people are like, hey, would you like to get involved in this? And I'm like, I don't, you know, I don't know. But the, and but now I have a way to like retort. Like I'm only interested in things that get better with with my age. So well, and and we've seen that happen. Uh, both you and I. I think the first time we met in person was on the skeptic track over at uh, Dragon Con. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, James Randi is someone who I am certain was very fascinating in the 1960s. Not as fascinating as he was in 2010. Uh, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and that's 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 the life I want to live. That's good. It's a good. That's a good milestone to look toward. I'm going to add all this. I'm going to take little notes for myself after this that I'll live by. <laughs> Welcome to Brian's it. life coach class. <laughs> <laughs> this is a new podcast. We'll make it as a spinoff. Uh, there's two other things I want to talk, uh, ask you about before we bounce out of here. Uh, one is uh, something you you told me about uh, that's in one of the episodes, which is. We have an, ad- an innate addiction to the aha moment of discovery. This is deeply related to what happens before a scam is pulled upon you. Uh, if you could elaborate more upon that, I think that's just a neat way to construct it. There's this moment I had where I was in Germany at the time uh, performing for the families whose um, uh, families were away uh, uh, fighting the war in Iraq at the time. And uh, I happened to be reading a skeptic magazine, and the subject was uh, orbs and how they show up on photographs. And an engineer proposed, uh, hey, you know that um, uh, that these CCDs, the light-capturing devices on camera phones, they're sensitive to infrared light, so maybe that has something to do with it. And uh, uh, I was like, is that true? And I pulled the remote control from in front of the TV and I shined it into my cheap Sony Ericsson uh, flip phone at the time. And sure enough, my eye couldn't see the infrared, but it showed up bright as day on the phone. I was like, I wonder if there's anything I could do with that. And then uh, the more I played with it, the more I realized that I could tell a very, very good ghost story. The one that involves a haunted videotape where everybody pulls out their phone and they try to record this bizarre static and their eyes sees nothing unusual, but on their phone, this ghoulish visage of a, of a face would show up. And it became a trick so good that for the first time I got hate mail, like actual hate mail that uh, uh, people didn't like being scared that much. Um that aha moment is a very potent creature. And in one of the episodes, we talk about the legendary tale of Michael Larson, who, watching Press Your Luck, going frame by frame, figured out that the supposedly random patterns on the board weren't random, that there were four tracks and that there were four safe spots on the board. And he sat and he practiced. And then he developed this perfect scheme. And we uh, 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 hopefully... I'm not ruining the episode for anyone, but uh, he goes on what is adjusted for inflation, the most epic single day run in the history of all game shows, full stop. Uh, he he goes well past 100 in an era in 1980s when you would be happy with a $7,000 haul. He pulled in $110,000 plus, so much so that everybody had to gather and figure out how he was cheating. And ultimately, CBS said, yeah, he's not. He broke the game. He just broke the game. And they wrote it to him. And that is as far as most people know this story. What we explore 
in this episode is what happens afterwards. Because what people don't know is that aha moment, that sense that if you think hard enough around corners, you can get paid again, he couldn't let go of. So instead, he locally, there was a radio station that would list off a bunch of numbers for a serial number. And if you happen to have a dollar bill that matched, you get paid $10,000. So he took his $100,000 of winnings, converted it to $1 bills, and day after day after day, kept looking to see if he had the right serial number. Finally, his common law wife says, can we just spend one night out? Can we please go to this Christmas party? So he relents, comes home to find it's all been stolen. He later goes on to wow. start a lottery, a fake lottery. I don't want to say it's fake, but a, a, a presumably fake lottery that gets advertised on internet Usenet news groups that the FBI says to date is their first investigation to internet fraud. And he ends up dying penniless in Florida. Uh, it is a heartbreaking tale that most people only know the smallest bits of. Uh, and, and in fact, my, my, my partner, Justin, won't like that I'm spilling this much about it, but trust me, it's worth it. It's a, it's a very wonderful journey and, and a human journey, as we talked about. Yeah, I mean, you could go look up some of the stuff on Wikipedia. It's not like hearing the stories as told by someone who understands this world. Well, the thing I got from his story, which is that I've noticed this in stories about like super con artists or super f people who, get, who do really big fraud scheme things. Yeah, they don't often stop there. They're like, "Wow, I figured out. I broke. I figured out the code. I see the. I see the matrix code of of life itself, and I can probably just do this forever." And I always wonder why they won't just like take their money and go buy a castle and and hide out because they, they're like, "No, I'll go. To, I'll move to another country and do it there." They never they haven't met me there yet. And it keeps they just get addicted. To yeah, it. I think it's an emergent property of the type of person. I, I have a flaw in that I can't handle lines. If there's a giant line for anything, I'd rather not do the thing than go through the line. And whether that means walk around to the back or put on a tuxedo and pretend to be working the event or, you know, whatever it is, like I'll do all of those things or just not go do it, you know. Uh, but, but along with that character comes the flaw of, of, you know, once you've seen success, this might be too, too far afield, but, um, uh, part of me wonders if a hardcore belief that anything is possible uh, doesn't lead to those tragic situations like um, uh, Steve Jobs when when uh, he doesn't want to accept the conventional diagnosis, but instead wants to try, uh, uh, let's say, fringy uh, uh, liver treatments, and and it didn't work out for him. You know, so uh, it's I I I. I if, if, if any of this is of interest, this is what we are meditating on, on World's Greatest Con. Is, yeah, is, this is the best. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm the target demographic for this, so I'm, I'm assuming the people that like this show will be like, yeah, that's my stuff too. So there's uh, one other thing I want to ask you about, which is, and I just like the way you construct this, the difference between a, a lie and being just wrong. Uh, tell me a little bit more about how that's explored in the show. The, uh, there's one of the stories where we, we frame it as a whodunit because there's sort of three different versions of the story and none of the facts match. And there's a temptation in simplistic discourse for us to say, well, if you're saying a thing that is not true, then you are lying. It's like, okay, is Stephen King lying when he makes up a story, you know, or, or uh, if you misremember it, are you lying? Or if you convince yourself of a thing, you know, and 
like the Brian he, Williams thing, because uh, where he was like didn't remember th- what had happened in in his war correspondence, and then he got absolutely demolished. In that the, in the broke press. my heart because I was one hundred percent like I've seen that happen. I've watched stories go from complicated narratives to increasingly simple threads, and uh, uh, and and I've seen in my own mind. The, the reimagining of things that uh, were, I believe he believed and, and that was enough. And he, he copped to it and said, clearly I conflated it. But uh, this goes back to kind of the fame and shame thing, something that uh, uh, in that book, uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, I think it's so important to recognize we figured out how to call BS as a society on the internet, but we've not figured out how to accept an apology. And mm. I think that's part of the adolescence that we're going through right now. And in this case, if what we really care about is solving the mystery of how did this perfect bid happen on The Price is Right, then we have to assume that all three actors aren't getting it right. All three suspects are either misremembering, either on purpose or by accident. But but I, I believe nobody's lying and that everybody is wrong. And when you allow yourself to accept that all of a sudden things become possible that you wouldn't otherwise think. Ah, it's so good. I could uh, jam it on this for forever, but I feel like we'll give away the whole show for uh, let's do that. Like old school radio uh, podcast thing for people who want to catch this program or just want to keep up with you as a person. How do you get this show? When does the next season come out? And also how do we get into your world of all the other cool stuff? Uh, so season drops on two twenty eight. So we are we are days away. Uh, world's greatest con podcast. If you type it pretty much anywhere, any podcatcher, any anything, you're going to find it. Uh, there with season two, we're starting to do it with ads. If you want the ad free experience, of course, Patreon.com/slash Greatest Con. Uh, and I'm very very chatty on Twitter. So. Uh, ask me any questions. Just a uh, Schwood S H W O O D. That's the last part of Brushwood. Uh, thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for making uh, these programs and breaking into this space. I look forward to all the other stuff you make here, and uh, I can't wait to put this up and share it with everyone. Oh heck yeah, dude! And I'm so glad that you're digging it. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter, at David McCraney, and follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Yes, it was a blog first, and now stuck with this name. So we're also on Facebook, slash youarenotsosmart. And if you would like to support the ins and outs of this operation, the behind the scenes stuff, help make it better, help pay for things like transcription or cutting up audio, sticking it on Twitter. Those things all are little programs that cost money. You can go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad free, but the higher amounts will give you posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This is Banjo Apocalypse. The interstitial music in this episode was by Incompetech. Tell everyone you know about the show. Really, that's the best way to support it. Just tweet about it. Put it up on uh, TikTok or whatever. Clip out whatever you want. Share it. If there is something that gave you value, that taught you something and you want to pass it on, please do. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.